I'd like to invite you now to turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 40. Genesis chapter 40, as we make our way through this book, uh, considering uh, the story of Joseph uh, and the broader story of the generations of Jacob, the story of uh, the tale of two sons, primarily Joseph and Judah, come to chapter 40. Uh, And so I'd like to read to us the entire chapter today. And so let us once again give ear to the reading of God's holy inspired word of God. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker. And he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued for some time in custody. And one night they both dreamed, they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, who were confined in the prison, each his own dream, and each dream with its own interpretation. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers who were with him in custody in his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? They said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, Do not interpretations belong to God? Please tell them to me. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, In my dream there was a vine before me, and on the vine there were three branches. As soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes and pressed them into Pharaoh's cup and placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And Joseph said to him, this is, the inter- this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office. You shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Only remember me when it is well with you. And please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh. So, and so get me out of this house. For I was indeed stolen out of the land of the Hebrews. And here also I have done nothing that they should put me into the pit. When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head. And in the uppermost basket, there were all sorts of baked food for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating out of the basket on my head. Joseph answered and said, this is its interpretation. The three baskets are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you, and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker, as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph but forgot him. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Let's ask his blessing upon it now. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the truth and the power that it conveys. And we pray, O Lord, that as your word is proclaimed, that you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, would pierce our hearts with your truth, that you would grant to us faith to believe all that is promised to us in the gospel, as well as hearts of gratitude for all that Christ has done. And we ask this in his name. Amen. 
Well, beloved Lord, we find Joseph having been sold as a slave by his brothers and was taken down to Egypt where he was bought by Potiphar, captain of the guard of Pharaoh. But as we saw last week, the Lord was with Joseph and was faithful to him and caused all that he did to succeed so that Potiphar, his master, put him in charge of his entire house, made him overseer, giving him authority and elevating him in his household. But because he refused the advances of his master's wife, we see that he was falsely accused and thrown into prison, facing a life sentence. And yet even there, even in that lowest point in Joseph's life, we read again that the Lord was faithful to him, that he was with him with his protective presence, and continued to make everything that he did to succeed. So that by the end of chapter 39, we see Joseph once again elevated to a position of authority where he is essentially made the chief warden of the prison. So so although this is not the ideal situation, this is certainly not where Joseph wants to be, away from his homeland, away from his father's house, and in prison, he nevertheless has a position of authority whereas the Lord is making the best of the situation and continuing to move along his plan for his life. As we will see, the closing of the prison doors on Joseph will ultimately result in the opening of the palace doors to him, as ultimately he is brought before Pharaoh and becomes the savior of the known world. But our story picks up today when it says sometime after this. We're not told how much time has gone by, although we do know that the, the, the approximate amount of time that Joseph spent as a servant in Potiphar's house, as well as the, uh, the time that he spent in prison, was a total of about uh, 13 years. And by the time we come to the end of chapter 40, we know that over a decade has elapsed because he has two full more years to spend in prison. And so, you know, we go from chapter 39 to chapter 40, and we think it may be a matter of days, but really, in all likelihood, it's well over a decade. And we read here that uh, in the course of time, that two men uh, are placed in the same prison as Joseph. First, we read of the cupbearer. Now, the cupbearer would be an official that would serve in Pharaoh's court, and much more than just the king's sommelier, the one selecting his wine and giving it to him. These men in the ancient world would serve as trusted confidants and advisors to the the monarch. And then we read also of the baker. It's interesting, we know from uh, extant literature from Egypt that the Egyptians had 38 different kinds of cake and 57 different varieties of bread. This tells me that these were people after my own heart But it also tells me that the chief baker, the one who would be responsible for uh, for producing such an important dietary staple for Pharaoh, would certainly be a man in a position of authority and great responsibility. So here we have these two men, the men who are responsible for something that Pharaoh uh, literally puts in his mouth every single day, very important, very trusted men, the cupbearer and the baker. We may be wondering, where's the candlestick maker? But he doesn't show up in this story. Yet these two men, we read, offended their Lord. Literally, we read that they, they, they committed offense. Literally, in the Hebrew, it is they sinned against their master. Now, we're not told the exact nature of their offense. 
But the fact that we are told that they sinned against their master and thus resulted uh, in their imprisonment contrasts with Joseph, whose refusal to sin by giving in to the advances of Potiphar's wife ended up putting him in prison. And so here we have a contrast between Joseph, who is innocent, and these men who actually committed an offense against Pharaoh, ending up being put in the same place as Joseph. Because after all, Joseph was imprisoned in the prison where the king's prisoners were were held. And since he was in charge of of everything that went on in the prison, of course, he is given charge. uh, He is given the special task of caring for these two men, these two high officials that had previously served in Pharaoh's court. This would have meant daily interaction that Joseph would have had with them as he brings them food, uh, as, as we see his interactions with them. He cares about them, makes sure, he makes sure that they're okay. And so Joseph is given charge of these men, and we read that they all remained there in prison for some time. In the course of events, we read in verse 5 that both of these men dreamed a dream. Now, here we have another set of dreams that that are related in the final portion of the book of Genesis. Actually, it is uh, number two of three sets of dreams. The first set of dreams, of course, were the dreams that Joseph had. Uh, As he was 17 years old, living in his father's house, he had these two dreams that both meant the same thing, uh, where he saw his brothers and the rest of his family bowing down to him. Of course, lacking social tact and uh, without the the foresight of knowing that this would get his brothers really upset at him, he went ahead and blurted out those dreams to his brothers, thus resulting in him being here down in Egypt. The third set of dreams, of course, are the dreams that Pharaoh will have in the next chapter that have to do with the years of plenty and the years of want. And yet here, in those instances, it was one man having two dreams that both meant the same thing. And yet here, we have two men dreaming one dream that have radically different interpretations, that result in radically different uh, uh, outcomes. And yet, these men dreamed these dreams, and yet they woke up, and there was no one there to interpret them. You see, in the ancient world, it was widely believed that dreams were a window into the spiritual realm, that dreams were ways in which the gods would be able to communicate uh, your future to you, and yet there was a whole um, professional class of men who were hired to interpret that dream. We'll see these men in chapter 41 as Pharaoh has a set of dreams, and he goes and he asks his magicians and his wise men to interpret these dreams. And yet here, the, the, the cupbearer and the baker have these vivid dreams, and they know for sure that this, is an, uh, an interp- that this uh, will predict their future, and yet there's no one there since they are not in Pharaoh's court. They do not have access to these professionals to interpret the dream. And so you have to appreciate their dilemma. They're very eager to learn their fate being in prison, and yet they cannot have, there's no one there to interpret the dream. So Joseph, as he probably did on his routine, went and visited them in the morning and noticed how distraught they were. And he says, hey, fellows, why are you looking so glum? And they tell, they tell Joseph their dilemma. We both had dreams, and yet no one is here to interpret them. And yet Joseph, we see in verse 8, is not at all phased by their predicament, but he boldly asserts 
that his God knows the interpretation of the dreams. And he confidently asserts that he would be able to relay that to them. And in so doing, Joseph, just with this offhanded remark, completely discounts the entire professional class of Egyptian magicians, the ones who ultimately in chapter 41 are unable to interpret Pharaoh's dreams. Here, Joseph confidently asserts that not because of his own strength, but through the power of God, he, as a man of faith, a man of prayer, a, a, a recipient of divine revelation himself, that through God's power, he would be able to give them the interpretation. We'll see the same thing happening later on in the Exodus when Moses uh, has far superior powers of the magicians and the wise men uh, during the time of the plagues. We see a similar thing taking place with Daniel in King Nebuchadnezzar's court as he is able to interpret the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, whereas the wise men of Babylon were unable to. And so confidence in his covenant God and confidence in the fact that he, that, uh, that he has a relationship with God and that God would be able to give him the interpretation, he asks these two men to relay the content of their dreams so that he could give the interpretation. And in verse 9, we see the cupbearer is the first. He's the first up to relay his dream, which is characterized by the number three. Did you notice that? Did you notice that? There are three branches on the vine, followed by three actions of the vine. It quickly and in rapid succession buds, shoots forth, and ripens into a cluster of grapes. And then three more actions of the cupbearer who takes that cluster of grapes, presses them into Pharaoh's cup, and places the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Here we have a, the cupbearer dreaming in rapid succession, kind of uh, you know, fast-forwarding what would ordinarily take years to produce a quality wine is happening in an instant as he squeezes the, the, the grape juice and immediately has wine that he places in Pharaoh's hand. And so Joseph gives the interpretation. Picking up on this number three that he, see, that he sees in the dream, he says the three branches are three days. And in three days, he says, Pharaoh will restore the cupbearer to his previous position. Literally, he says, he will lift up your head, which is a figurative way to speak of exaltation, of being lifted up, of being restored to your former position. We see David use this type of language in Psalm chapter 3 when he was on the run from his son Absalom, who had launched a rebellion against him. And as, as, Pharaoh, or as, sorry, as David is crying out to the Lord for deliverance, he confidently asserts that the Lord, he says, you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. Here, David, using this language of the lifting up of his head, will speak confidently of the fact that the Lord will restore him to his former place, will let him sit back on the throne despite his son's rebellion against him. And so here, Joseph uses that language to refer to the cupbearer's exaltation, being brought up, being restored, his head being lifted up to the former position that he had. Now, taken literally, to lift up your head could mean something radically different, as we will see within the cupbearer, or sorry, in the baker's dream being interpreted. But having given the cupbearer his favorable interpretation, and confident that it most, most certainly will come to pass. Notice how Joseph in verse 14 says, you know, when this happens, when it goes well for you, 
uh, Joseph has a favor to ask of the cupbearer. His favor is, remember me. Remember me. More than just uh, think about me from time to time, what Joseph is giving the cupbearer is a call to action. You see, when, that, when we use that word, when, when Scripture uses that word to remember, it's more than just having a recollection, but it is literally calling to the forefront of your mind your obligation and then acting upon it. We saw that back in chapter 8 during the flood. In chapter 8, verse 1, we read that the Lord remembered Noah. It wasn't as if God had forgotten and he was up in the heavens thinking, oh yeah, I have Noah in the ark and all the animals, I better go rescue him. No, that the use of that word for God to remember something is a way of communicating that he called, as it were, to the forefront of his mind, his obligations, his promises, what he said he would do to Noah and his family and the animals, and then he acted on it by sending a wind to have the waters recede. So here, Joseph asked the cupbearer to remember him, to remember him and then to act upon that as he says, do me the kindness. This word here, translated kindness, is a word that that comes up throughout the Old Testament, specifically with regard to God's actions towards us. Another way of translating this word would be covenant faithfulness or loyalty. Uh, It's translated at the end of chapter 39, steadfast love. The steadfast love that God had for Joseph, which is never ending, we are told in Scripture, is what Joseph is asking this man, the cupbearer, to do once he's restored to his position of authority. Show me faithfulness. Show me loyalty. Don't forget me, but plead my cause before Pharaoh. See, Joseph goes on to tell him that he is uh, innocent, that he was stolen, literally stolen by his brothers and sold as a slave. And, and ultimately, what landed him in prison, uh, he, he is innocent of. So he asks this favor of the cupbearer to, to, uh, to plead his cause before the highest court of the land, hoping that his sentence would be overturned and that he would be released from the pit. Ultimately, the cupbearer's failure to do this, as we see at the end of our chapter, that he did not remember Joseph but forgot him, Ultimately, that failure is more than just a mental lapse, but it is a moral lapse. See, the cupbearer owed it to Joseph, not only through the years of service that Joseph gave to him as he attended him faithfully in prison, but also through giving him this favorable interpretation. The cupbearer owed it to him. It was the least he could do, and yet he failed to show that faithfulness and loyalty to his, uh, to his fellow prisoner. Well, seeing that the cupbearer received good news from his dream, the baker now confidently uh, jumps in and says, I too have dreamed a dream. You see, he's excited now. It's kind of like on Christmas Day where you see your brother or your sister open up a present, which is really cool, and then you have a present to open. And so he wants to find out what his interpretation is. And his dream also features the number three, except here it's not three uh, branches from the vine, but three baskets filled with all sorts of baked goods, those 37 varieties of cake and the 50-some-odd varieties of bread, all filled on his head with the baskets on his head that he's about to bring to Pharaoh, and yet ominously we find this eerie detail of the birds of the heavens eating the bread from off his head. 
This should remind us of something back in chapter 15 when God made a covenant with Abraham and he told Abraham to sever the animals in half. And as the animals were laying there, the blood spilling out, picturing the cursed death which would come upon the covenant breaker, we read that the birds of prey came upon the animals and Abraham had to shoo them away. You see, the idea of the birds coming to eat your flesh was a sign of of the curse of what would come upon you uh, at your death if you you died a cursed death. And yet he tells this dream to Joseph. And like the previous dream, the three objects represent three days. And also like the previous dream, Joseph tells the man that Pharaoh will lift up your head. And yet here, he's not using it in a figurative sense to describe being restored to your formal position of glory. But here he's using it in a literal sense when he says, Pharaoh will lift up your head from off your body, literally chopping your head off. And then he says, and then Pharaoh will hang you on a tree. This is most likely describing impalement as the dead corpse of the baker would be impaled on a a stake and left to rot so that the birds would come and eat the flesh off of his body. This was uh, more than just execution. This is aggravated execution where the body is exposed to show that this man is particularly cursed. The the, the Egyptians who were very caught up with the afterlife would do this in, in, in the thinking that if your body is not given a proper burial, then you will not be able to experience the afterlife. And the fact that the birds would eat the flesh off of you uh, is the most uh, heinous, cursed way to die. This death is highlighted later on in the law where the Lord himself pronounces a curse upon any who is hanged upon a tree. In Deuteronomy 21, he says, and if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day for a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So here the Lord highlights in his law how particularly heinous this form of death is. So heinous and cursed by God is it that he says you shall not leave a man on a tree overnight and thus defile the land. And so this is the grim news that Joseph has to give to the baker as he faithfully interprets his dream. And in verse 20, we fast forward to three days later, which just so happens to be Pharaoh's birthday. We actually have records of the Pharaohs granting pardons to people who sinned against them on their birthdays or on the anniversary of their ascension to the throne. And this seems exactly like what is happening here, at least to the cupbearer. As we read that he, in verse 21, is uh, is restored, is brought back to the position that he had as he's able to place the cup in Pharaoh's hand. And yet in verse 22, following the words of Joseph, Joseph almost verbatim, we see things happen ex- exactly as he had predicted, exactly as the Lord had predicted through him, as the baker meets his demise and is hanged on a tree, suffering the curse of death. And yet at the end of the passage, no doubt elated and, and, and pinching himself at this turn of events with 
was being restored at the, at the Pharaoh's party that he throws. The cupbearer is caught up in the moment, and yet uh, over time we read that he forgot Joseph, that he did not remember him, that he did not make good on his end of the deal. And again, this is more than just a mental lapse. It's a moral failure on his part to do what he should have done in being faithful to his, uh, to his friend. And yet, as a, and as a result, at the end of our passage, we read that Joseph remains in prison, forgotten by man, and seemingly forgotten by God. You see, as Joseph sits there, as these two men are taken to their wildly different fates, as the cupbearer is restored, as their dreams that they have are fulfilled in the course of three days, you may wonder if Joseph reflected upon his dreams that he had years before and began to wonder how is it that their dreams can be, can be fulfilled almost immediately, and yet my dreams remain unfulfilled. And for, from all external circumstances, there is no way that the two dreams he had would ever come to pass. No doubt, he began to wonder, did God forget about me? Did God forget to do what he promised he would do? And no doubt, centuries later, the Israelites, uh, serving as slaves, serving uh, Pharaoh, their taskmaster in Egypt for 400 years, began to think the same thing, as their cries for deliverance seemed to be unanswered. And yet we read in Exodus chapter 2 that their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning, and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. See, the fact that we are told there in Exodus chapter 2 that he remembered doesn't mean that he had forgotten, that he forgot about his people in slavery, and after 400 years thought, oh yeah, I forgot. <laughs> I made these promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I better act on it. No. You see, the God, so you see God is acting in his own timing according to his infinite wisdom to accomplish his plan. The truth is, is that God never forgets his people or the promises that he swears to them, but he must, but sometimes he makes us patiently wait. And Joseph would have to wait another two whole years in prison before he is brought before Pharaoh's throne. You see, if the cupbearer did remember Joseph, if he had immediately pleaded his cause before the Pharaoh, perhaps. Pharaoh would have heard his case. And perhaps Joseph would have been released from prison. But that would have been it. Pharaoh certainly would not have felt indebted to him. He certainly would not have been placed in a position of authority as he is later on. You see, God in his infinite wisdom and counsel is bringing about his purposes, but sometimes just not according to our timeline. And yet Joseph would have to wait. But there's a sense where we have to wait, where we wait for our final, uh, uh, the final redemption of our bodies, where we need to patiently wait in this life, and we need to be reminded of the fact that God has not forgotten us, but he will be faithful to accomplish all of his promises in Christ. And yet, in one sense, while Joseph had to look forward to the fulfillment, and the Egyptians in slavery had to look forward to the redemption God would fulfill, there's a sense where we as New Covenant believers can look back and look back to see how God was faithful in accomplishing his purposes. And I think we see that vividly portrayed in our passage today as we conclude. 
as we reflect upon the radically different outcomes of the two men, the cupbearer and the baker. One having been forgiven and restored and brought to the right hand of the king. The other suffering a cursed death on a tree. We don't know if the baker had actually deserved that type of death, but one thing for sure, each and every one of us by nature are children of wrath. Each and every one of us as sinners against God's most high majesty deserve a fate far worse than what the baker deserved. Indeed, we deserve eternal punishment in hell. And yet Christ, the true sinless one, the one who had done nothing to deserve a death, became sin for us in order that we might become the righteousness of God. And he did so by suffering that same cursed death which the baker suffered by being hanged on a tree. As Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 3, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. See, like the cupbearer, we have been forgiven. We have been exalted with, together with Christ Jesus. We have been seated with him in the heavenly places through the power of the Holy Spirit. So let us give thanks for what God has done for us in Christ, and let us patiently wait for our final redemption. Amen?